Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading and sermon passage, Luke chapter 24, verses 33 to 43. God's holy word. Listen to it carefully. Starting in verse 33 of Luke 24. And they arose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. And he says to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And while they were And while they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we are a needy people. Both our bodies and our spirits uh, struggle at times like this in worship to worship you properly because part of us doesn't want to, Lord, the old man. But we thank you that we have promises in your word that you will aid us in times like this, you will enable us to overcome our weaknesses, our tendency to inattention, our uh, distractions of the body. Would you please aid us that we might hear, carefully hear what you are saying in this passage, that we might benefit but even more importantly, that you might be glorified through us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Children, have you ever asked one of your parents or 
yeah, let's just say a parent, because liable to be a parent. Ask one of your parents, or maybe both of them, uh, a question that he or she, depending on which parent, had difficulty answering, where they kind of were like stopped and maybe were silent for a moment, or their expression kind of changed on their face when you asked it. I'll give you a couple of examples of questions that might do this to your parents. You might want to ask them. Actually, maybe not all of them. Um, where do babies come from? How are birds able to fly? Where did God come from? Those require some, those questions are all ones that are a little troublesome for adults to explain to young children for different reasons. Let's say you did that. Maybe you did. But if you didn't, let's just pretend you did. There was a time when you asked a question like that and they were like, ooh. The reason it's difficult for parents to ask, uh, answer some of these questions is because you are children and there are things that are true of adults that just aren't true of children. Adults have had experiences that you haven't had. Uh, adults know words that you don't know. Um, adults have had opportunities to learn things in the world around them that you children just haven't had yet because you're so young. And so it's difficult. Well, if you asked one of those questions of uh, your father or your mother, let's just say your father, um, there are a couple of things that parents try to do to help their children understand difficult things. Uh, and maybe your dad or mom did this, stooped down and, and looked you in the eye. Maybe knelt down even and kind of looked at you and held your hand to try to get your attention. Maybe, maybe uh, your parent altered their voice, the tone of their voice, to help you kind of pay closer attention. Maybe uh, started talking more uh, quietly perhaps to get you to, to tune in. Perhaps they used um, um, descriptions, um, uh, comparisons to help you understand the, uh, the question and the answer to the question. Or maybe they used uh, uh, an illustration from life to, to make the point. The point is, um, what your parent is doing when they do these different things to, to help you is they're doing it because they're taking into account the fact that you're a child and you're not an adult. And so it's, it's going to be more difficult for you to understand and they have to do special things to help you to understand the, uh, the answer to your difficult question that you may have asked them. Well, in a somewhat similar way, Jesus does the same thing for us as Christians. And in particular, on this occasion that we just, I just read of here, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus kind of stoops down, in a matter of speaking, to help the disciples understand what has happened and to help them overcome their mental and their spiritual weaknesses and limitations on account of the fact that they're 
creatures. We are, we are all creaturely. And also on the count of the fact that they're sinners. And we are sinners. And God sometimes has to, as Jesus did on this occasion, stoop down to accommodate our weaknesses and does so. One of which is the Lord's Supper, by the way, and the sacrament, the other sacrament, baptism, and the use of tangible things to help us to understand spiritual realities. But Jesus, here in this passage, is accommodating the weakness, the spiritual and, I'll say, mental weakness of his disciples so that they can grasp what has taken place more fully. Two points that we're going to be addressing in our time together, the remaining time here in this passage. The first is this. We see that the risen Lord, the risen Christ rather, graciously accommodates himself to the needs of his disciples and his people. And secondly, we see in this passage that the risen Lord graciously accommodates himself to the doubts of his disciples and of his people. First, the risen Christ graciously accommodates himself to the needs of his disciples on this particular occasion. These men, you recall, had abandoned Christ in his hour of need. They were probably humiliated. They were probably scared, undoubtedly. They were probably couldn't forgive themselves. And they probably desperately wanted to know that God had forgiven them for what they'd done. Especially God the Son, Jesus. And so Jesus, aware of this, comes to them to be present with them, physically present with them on this occasion. It's late on Resurrection Sunday, I'm going to call it that. It's late on Resurrection Sunday uh, in a house somewhere in Jerusalem. Ten of the disciples, not Thomas, but ten of them are present on this occasion. Um, and apparently some others as well. Some other people are there as well. And the doors are locked in this house that they are in for fear of the Jews taking the disciples and doing to them what they'd just done to their master. Perhaps they are gathered together here uh, to pray, probably almost certainly to pray and to mourn their, uh, their master's death. They're probably here also to try to understand the mind-numbing events of the previous week and to perhaps evaluate their options for the future. What do we do now that our Lord is gone? Or perhaps uh, they were here to hear the testimony of Peter and of those women who had seen uh, Jesus following his resurrection uh, at, the, um, at the tomb. Well, then suddenly, as they're in this room together, um, without warning, suddenly the risen Christ 
appears to them in the midst of their company without the door being opened and him walking through. One moment he's not there and the next minute there he is standing in front of him. They're startled. They're frightened. They're bewildered. What is going on? What is this we are seeing? They're seeing Jesus. And there are at least two reasons why the Lord appears to them on this occasion. First, without a doubt, he is coming to corroborate the testimonies of those who have already seen him, of Mary Magdalene, of Simon Peter, and of the two men who were traveling on the road to Emmaus who have just come here to this location. And he has come, Jesus has come, to corroborate the testimonies of these people concerning his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from the dead. That's one of the reasons why, undoubtedly, why Jesus appears to them and comes to them. But there is also another reason. And that is to announce peace to them. You may have noticed, if you were reading with me uh, in the New American Standard, that uh, I... My, my New American Standard in verse 36 says, and while they were telling these things, he stood, he himself stood in their midst, period. That's what the New American Standard says in the, in the main text, but then there's a margin note uh, down at the bottom of the page and says, some ancient manuscripts insert, and he says to them, peace be to you. I included that in my reading, and there's a reason, because it belongs there. The textual evidence, uh, I'm convinced, points to the fact that that was actually said by our Lord Jesus, and it belongs there. Um, and so he indeed, he indeed did say those words on that occasion, and Luke testifies to it. And it's uh, the translators, uh, the uh, compilers of the New American Standard, for whatever reason, chose not to include that. Um, but I think they were, respectfully think they were wrong in uh, putting it down at the bottom of the page in a footnote. So, Jesus comes into their midst and he says to them, peace to you. He pronounces peace. This can only have one meaning at this point in time for these men and a very special meaning to these men. As I already mentioned, they had abandoned him in his hour of need. They had denied him, Peter in particular. And Jesus here, by saying those words to these men, is indicating that he has, he is at peace with them. He has forgiven them. for their cowardice, for their weakness, for their denials. And he holds nothing against them. 
there is peace between him and them. And he wants them to know that. How does this apply to you and me? Well, you and, you and I may not have deserted. We have not deserted or denied Christ during his lifetime on earth because, of course, we were not there as his disciples had done. We did not do their crime, if you will. But, folks, we regularly do something very similar in our hearts and in our lives today as Christians. We confessed our sins a little while ago. When we sin against the Lord, we are at that moment in, in time deserting Jesus. We are at that moment in time saying, Jesus, you're not my king. I am my king. I am in charge. I want this. I don't care if you don't. Now, we may not think it through quite like that with all those words. Hopefully we don't. But the truth is, that is in effect what is going on. We are, we are doing something akin to what the disciples did and what Peter did. In Jesus' hour of need. Sin is is a denial of Christ of, of a sort. It's a desertion or an abandonment of Christ at that moment at least uh, of a sort. The last time God gave you an opportunity uh, to season your conversation with a non-Christian with words of grace and you refused to take that opportunity, that was a denial of Jesus. The last time you found yourself or you found something more important to do or more interesting to do um, than spend time in God's word and prayer when you were reminded that you needed to spend time in God's word and prayer. You deserted him. You did not come to him. The last time you refused and I refused to act on some promise that he has given to us in his word or some command that he has given to us in his word. The last time we refused to do that, we deserted him or denied him. You folks who were married, the last time you refused to put your spouse's needs before your own, that was disobedient. We are to put the needs of others, especially our spouses, ahead of ourselves. That was a... Uh, that was a decision to ignore Jesus. You children, last time you didn't bother to do something that your parents told you you need to do, and you just thought, I can get away with not doing this, and they'll never know, probably. You were saying, Jesus, leave me alone. The glorious truth that is taught here by Jesus' words, peace be to you, is that rather than condemning you and me for our treasonous rebellion against him, even if it's subtle rebellion, it is treasonous, rather than condemning us for that, as he is perfectly within his rights to do, our God and our Savior in particular completely forgives us, those of us who are believers, 
just as he did the disciples on this occasion when he announced peace to them. And what he did involved tremendous condescension. Condescension, that's the word I want to say, not condemnation, condescension. He displayed enormous condescension on this occasion. Think about it. This is after his death and after his resurrection. His work as the second Adam, with the exception of the ascension uh, to the right hand of the Father, uh, his work as the second Adam in the covenant of grace was essentially over, at least the, the vast majority of that work as the second Adam, as the head of the God's elect. He had lived his life of perfect obedience to the will of God for 33 years. He had fully satisfied uh, God's just demand that our sins be punished in his own sacrifice of himself on the cross. And he had overcome the powers of death and hell. Hell is God's fury. It is what Jesus suffered when he was on the cross. God's fury against our sin. And he had overcome that. What need was there to remain in this sin-filled world when glory and indescribable honor and dominion awaited him in heaven? Why wait 40 days is what I'm trying to say. Why not just rise from the grave and ascend into heaven and not tarry 40 days on earth? There was no reason for him to do so from the standpoint of redemption and atonement. The work was essentially done. It was done. All it was needed was the capstone on that work was his uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He could have, arguably, Jesus could have sent word through an angel that he was alive. Actually, he kind of did. He did. And he could have just left it at that. Taken off, as it were. But no, he chose to be with his people, his disciples. Those for whom he died for 40 additional days. What possessed him to do that? Love, that's the answer. He loved his disciples, his followers, and he wanted to minister to them himself, in person, because he loved them enough to wait for the glory, the fullness of glory that awaited him when he arrived in heaven bodily. He wanted to minister to his people because he loved them. What we can take away from this is, I think, fairly obvious. First of all, it's important to note that even though Jesus is bodily absent from us, 
He remains in our midst, if we are believers, trusting in him alone. He remains in our midst, truly in our midst, in our hearts, through his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, which is what the Holy Spirit is called in Scripture in the New Testament. It is his spirit. Remember what he said just before his ascension, recorded for us in the end of Matthew, uh, after he gave the... uh, the Great Commission, he said, and lo, I am with you always. How is he with us always if he ascended into heaven? The answer is by his spirit dwelling within us. He's not just in heaven. He's in heaven bodily. But he's here in spirit, right here. Yeah, exactly. He hasn't left you or me. That's one thing we need to for sure keep in mind. We also need to understand that just as he was aware of his disciples' great need for uh, assurance that he had forgiven them for for their sins against him, he knew what was going on in their hearts is what I'm trying to tell you. He was aware of their, their hurt. He was aware of their shame. And he's aware of yours, your hurts, your needs for comfort, your needs for strengthening, your needs for assurance of his love, your needs for a sense of his presence. What do you need? What do you need, spiritually speaking, right now? He knows it. And just as Jesus came to meet his disciples' needs during the 40 days that he walked upon the earth by appearing to them multiple occasions bodily and speaking peace to them, just as he came to them, he will come to you. If you seek him for it, only for Christians, this only applies to Christians. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you yet. It may apply if you become one. But he will come to you and minister at your point of need as you seek him for that help, that comfort, that assurance, that instruction, that guidance, that wisdom. But you need to seek him. Say, Lord, here's the way I'm feeling. This is my struggle. Please help me. He comes to those of his people who need him in power, and in grace. And you can know that he will help you and is helping you and will help you in the future. Secondly, the risen Christ not only graciously accommodates himself to the needs of his people, he also accommodates himself to the doubts of his people as well. And this text speaks eloquently to that fact. He did this. He accommodated himself to the needs of his disciples on this occasion by providing them with evidence, irrefutable evidence, of his bodily presence with them. Notice in verse 37, but they were startled and frightened. They don't know what to think. 
They're confused. They're, they're scared. They're, they're uh, upset because this is so shocking what they're seeing before their eyes. And it's clear from verses 9 through 11 of Luke 24 that they had doubts prior to his appearance on this occasion. I won't bother reading it for the sake of time, but verses 9 through 11 of earlier on in the chapter speak of the, the doubts that they had um, and, uh, regarding um, news that they had heard of his resurrection. And their doubts persisted even after, their, even after Jesus' arrival in their midst on this occasion, as we read in verse 38. Why are you troubled? And why, Jesus says this to them, why are you troubled, right after appearing, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He was standing right there and they were doubting their own, what they were seeing. And it appears from verse 39 of our text that their, their unbelief had taken on a, a new form, shall we say. Rather than doubting his personal presence with them, pretty hard to refute that. It appears that now the doubt was not that he wasn't personally present with them, but that he was physically present, materially present in body with them. As verse 39 seems, Jesus' words in verse 39 seem to indicate that uh, that was what was, had become the issue now. That they thought they were seeing a spirit of the spirit of Jesus, but not the body of Jesus. They had just heard, prior to Jesus coming here, the two men to whom Jesus had appeared on the road to Emmaus. They'd heard him, them rather, testify that he had risen from the dead. They had just experienced that somewhat earlier and had come to this location to tell the other disciples. And yet, here we see their waffling faith still, even though Jesus comes. They're unable to accept the notion that he is bodily here when his body was died on the cross. Well, Jesus responds to their confusion and their weakness of faith, first of all, with a, a mild scolding. I'll call it that in verse 38. Why, do you, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? That's a gentle, but, but it is a bit of a, he's saying it, doubts shouldn't be arising in your hearts at this point, gentlemen. And he reminds them of that. And why shouldn't doubts have arisen in their hearts? Why does Jesus have cause to mildly scold them at first? Because he himself had informed them that he would rise from the dead. Over in Luke chapter 9, and this is just one place, it's recorded for us. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he had said to them earlier on in his ministry, he'd said this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
All those men were there for that conversation. But rather than interpreting their experience on this occasion in light of Jesus' past teaching to them, namely there in Romans, in, uh, in Luke 9, 20, 22 and other places where he said something similar, rather than interpreting their experience in light of what Jesus had taught them previously, they allowed their imaginations free reign, if you will. And this prevented them from properly understanding what, was, what they were seeing before them, the embodied Christ. By the way, there's some instruction here for us, namely that our interpretations of our own experiences need to be informed and shaped by God's word first and foremost. Sometimes we can let our imaginations run a little wild and think things that just frankly aren't biblical. I know some people who, uh, actually I'm not sure he's a Christian, the person I'm thinking about, but who's absolutely convinced that UFOs are true. I think the Bible rules it out. For reasons that you can ask me about later if you want to hear it. But my point is, we need to, I, what I think those are, but anyway, those things are, they're, they're demonic. They're, uh, they're, they're demonic things designed to deceive people and draw them away from Christianity with some glitz, glitzy, glitzy thing that, uh, oh yeah, UFOs are so cool. And not focus on the truth of their need of Christ and uh, of the reality of what the Bible teaches. Similarly, in the, uh, in the, uh, those, for Christian scientists, this is, this is something they have to deal with. Uh, you know, not interpret their, their, uh, their findings, especially geologists, by, by talking to other geologists who are unbelievers uh, and talk about billions of years. I need to go, no. My Bible rules that one out. And Christian scientists who study such things to be honoring to God need to rule that one out as well and do their, uh, their scientific discoveries and so on, analysis within the framework of those assumptions. We all make assumptions. Everybody makes assumptions. All scientists make lots of assumptions. It's just a matter of which assumptions you make as you approach scientific inquiry. So you get the point I'm making. The Bible has to govern what we think. Trumps everything else. Does it for you? It needs to. So, after the mild ch uh, chastising from the Lord, or scolding from the Lord, he then directs his, their attention to his wounds. And he does this to assist them in their unbelief. He says there in verse 39, see my hands, look, look. That's what he says. Look at my feet, that it is I myself. In other words, the full me, not just the spirit, but the body as well. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
So first he tells them to look, to notice the, the wounds in his body. And he's doing this, to, again, to accommodate their weakness of faith. And just seeing his wounds, the scars in his hands and his feet should have been enough to drive away all doubt, I, one would think. But then he goes that one step further and he doesn't just say, look, he then says, go ahead and touch. Feel my flesh, is what he's saying. And then he says, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. But I do. This rules out this passage and many others, but this one rules out the docetic understanding of the resurrection that Jesus just seemed to appear bodily to people, but actually he was just a spirit. That's called docetism. It's a, it's a heresy, early heresy that arose in the early church and it still lingers today among liberal Christian, well, the people that call themselves Christians who, uh, who don't believe the Bible. Um, it rules it out. The risen Christ wasn't merely a spirit. He was spirit and body. And still is in heaven. You see, the, you'd, you'd think, again, all doubts would be swept away by this point in time. He's shown them. He's spoken to them. He's let them touch his, his, uh, his body. You'd think all doubts would be done away with and... Um, Seeing and touching the Lord definitely had an effect on them. As we read in verse uh, 41, they were filled with wonder uh, at what they were seeing and what they were experiencing. Yet, they continued to harbor lingering doubts, even at that point, it appears. They're allowing their emotions to obscure their judgment. And Jesus, perceiving this continued weakness of faith on the part of the disciples, responds by offering them yet further evidence that he is with them there bodily. And what is that evidence? Verse 42 and 43. And he gave, uh, and he, well, he said in verse 41, Jesus did, have you anything here to eat? Why would he say that? He wasn't hungry. He said that to make a point. Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, probably big eyes like this. And he took it and he ate it before them. Why is that detail in there? It's there because it's a yet further evidence that a, sp a spirit doesn't eat fish. A, a sp it, would, it would fall through the spirit to the floor. Well, the spirit couldn't grab the fish to begin with, let alone get it inside. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. It's, you, you understand what I'm saying. It was, again, an accommodation to their weakness, their doubts. He lovingly, graciously helps them believe the way they should. And just as Christ graciously accommodates, accommodated himself to the doubts of these, his original disciples, he continues to do that for us today, we who are weak in faith. Christ is aware of those times when your faith is weak, 
when you're struggling to believe the scriptures, the, the promises, the commands. He knows your frame and mine. He's mindful that we are but dust and sinful dust at that. But he is a high priest, we are told, who sympathizes with our weaknesses and is patient with us. And he accommodates himself to those weaknesses of faith that we so regularly and experience by giving us his word written down for us. It's a sure word that is written down, that is tangible, that we can look at and read on the page. He accommodates himself to our weakness of faith by confirming his promises through the sacraments, as I said, and the sacraments themselves are tangible, involve, uh, involve the body, involve the use of our lips and our hands, our taste buds, our stomachs. We can feel. It, it's, it brings the body into the, into the, the worship experience, I'll put it that way. And that's the Lord who gave us those sacraments. He also accommodates us, or himself, to our weaknesses by answering our prayers in ways that make it obvious that he is in control of all things and guiding our lives and has us in his tender care. And he accommodates himself to our weaknesses by providing other, other Christians around us to encourage us to keep the faith when, when our faith is faltering. Other brothers and sisters who at that point in time are stronger than we are and who will come alongside, which is, by the way, what we should all be doing to each other. We all have different struggles at different times. We need to come alongside and say, brother, it's okay, or sister, it's okay. The Lord is faithful. You're going to get through this. Look at this promise here, and you read from the scripture. Say, that's for you. He's not going to fail you. He may not answer your prayer exactly the way you want all the time, but that doesn't mean he's failed you. He's going to take care of you or provide whatever meet that need that you have um, in your life. Jesus is continuing to minister to us, is my point. He hasn't left us. He hasn't um, left us unattended. Even as he is in heaven, he is also here with you and me. This only applies, all that I've said, only applies if you are resting in Jesus Christ as your only hope of being made right with God and being going to heaven. If you have, if you're a churchgoer and you're here and you think because you go to church faithfully you're going to heaven, you're not a Christian. Because your church going plays no part in getting you into heaven. If you're here and you think you're going to heaven uh, and you're okay with God because you believe in God, but you just believe in a higher power, you're not a Christian. You're lost and you're on the road to hell right now. You need to get off that road. I'll tell you in just a second how to do that. 
If you're here and you're trusting in your baptism or the fact that you take communion or the fact that you're a member in good standing of some church, even this church, and you think that's going to play a part in getting you into heaven, you're not a Christian. Christians don't trust in their baptisms to get them into heaven. They don't trust in their church memberships or their good deeds because none of that, you can't play, do anything to save yourself, neither can I. Only Jesus can save us. Only his obedience to God was perfect, and that's what God requires is perfect obedience. He has to see that when he pronounces somebody uh, uh, right in his sight, and if he doesn't see perfection, he says, away from me, I never knew you. And only Jesus' righteousness does it. And you only get that righteousness credited to you if you're trusting in him alone. So if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus alone, please, please, trust in him alone to save you. He's your only hope of not being punished eternally for your sins. We all need him. You need him. All you have to do is say, Jesus, save me. And trust him to save you and to be the Lord of your life because he is the Lord. And he requires that all those who come to him in faith come to him as Savior and Lord. And he will save you forevermore. And then all that I have said prior to this point in time will be true for you as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you that um, you, Lord Jesus, are indeed a risen Savior. You are enthroned in uh, glory, uh, indescribable glory in heaven. And the Father and the Spirit, uh, together with you, are now ruling over the cosmos. And you, Lord Jesus, are in the process of subduing uh, all of your enemies to yourself one way or the other by conversion or destruction. Lord, we thank you that... Um, we serve a living Savior, a risen Savior. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are also a Savior who is gentle and, uh, and patient with us, your people, and accommodates the weaknesses of our faith. And we are all too often weak, Lord, in faith and um, needy. Uh, but we thank you that you care for us in our, t in our need, and you are happy to minister to us and provide what we need to serve you and to uh, experience a, uh, an abundant life uh, this side of heaven and to get us to heaven. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, truly know you in a saving way, would you please give a new heart to such an individual? And for those of us who do know you, we ask that you would help us to remember that you are a savior uh, and a Lord who loves us, who uh, rejoices to meet us in our points of need and provide for us, and that we can trust you to do that. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.